All right. So this week we are continuing our discussion on having God's personality. And this week, uh, first of all, how many of you guys are enjoying these conversations? I hope they're helpful. I hope they're good. Talked about holiness a couple of weeks ago. Last week we talked about love and loving kindness, uh, chesed, ahava. And um, one thing I want to just make a point again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna spend as long rehashing last week as I did last week for the week before. But um, I want us to. I want you to understand my my motivation. I'm trying to do better in communicating this. Uh, we tend to, or I'll say I tend to, and if you if you tend to too, then put yourself in that company. If not, when we learn something new. We have a tendency to go, well, it's not that at all anymore. It's now just this. So we have this whole baby out with the bathwater thing, right? And that's just a natural, I think, human reaction. Uh, we do it with, we, we do it especially in the Torah movement, in the Messianic Hebrew Roots movement. Uh, we do it especially, and uh, to our detriment, we've thrown out a lot of really good stuff that we learned in church. Um, to our to our detriment, and the the problem is, if you are just in the beginning of your Torah walk and you're dealing with church hurt, which is a thing, a real thing, you can't hear that. You can't hear that. No, there was good stuff there. You just can't. I don't want to hear it. Everything has to go, and it's part of the natural, I think, process of learning. And what I don't want to do from now on in my teaching is say all of the old stuff was wrong now we have to look at it only this way so for instance when we are defining terms like we've been doing the last couple of weeks holiness love uh loving kindness or chesed you take a word like chesed and we think of loving kindness. And what I don't want to do is say, no, that's not the definition. This should be the definition. But what I want, the attitude I want to have is like, that's, a, that's part of it. But let's expand on what we know. Let's add to what we know. And let's, let's make a bigger picture. Um, Kyle and I were talking, Brother Ron and I were talking before service. Um, how many of you have a Strong's Concordance? Okay. Yeah, most of us have a Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance is great. It's a wonderful tool. However, Strong's Concordance only gets you so far. It is good for what it's meant to be. As a concordance, to see where verses are, where words are, how many times something appears, where they cross-reference, all that stuff is great. But strong, but people study, they have a Strong's, and then they all of a sudden they go like, I know Hebrew and Greek, because I have a Strong's. So, this little illustration hit me last night, and it might not land for you, but it, it, was, it was really interesting to me. So we've talked in the last couple of weeks about definitions create what? Expectations, right? And those expectations create a reality. So this is a, this is a, this is a, a process that I want you to kind of burn in your, in your mind because I think it's true. 
And it's something that we need to be asking ourselves as we seek truth. Okay? So this is always the process that we have to go through. The way we define something creates an expectation. Right? Those expectations then we build a reality around because that's what humans need. We need to be able to be sure of things. And that's what expectations create based on the definitions we use. When you use something like a Strong's, which is great. Again, I'm not knocking Strong's. I love Strong's. I have one my mom gave me when I was in in high school. Um, You get a very narrow, I'll say, definition of a word. What you need then is something called a lexicon, which gives you a broader idea, sense of the word. But what you really need is somebody that speaks that language, right? So for Mother's Day, I got a new griddle this year. You heard that right. For Mother's Day, I got a new griddle. Now, I grew up, Dad always cooked on a barbecue pit with the coals. He's great. He could cook all day long on a set of coals. For me, I light a set of coals. 20 minutes later, they're out. I'm frustrated. We're ordering pizza. I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. And gas just seems, I don't know, like cheating to me. I'm sorry. So I got a griddle, and I love it. Maybe it's because of all my time at McDonald's when I was in high school. I was the fry king. Um, so we got, we got a griddle. And so I've been on YouTube, like, nerding out over griddle recipes and, and, like, finding griddle recipes. What can I cook on this thing? It's awesome. And there's a guy that I like. I like his cooking show. So I, I, I was watching the other day, and he makes all these flatbread recipes, which I'm like, cool. I can go to Walmart and buy some naan bread. Heck, I can make my own. It's called matzah, right? I can make my own. I can cook me some stuff. It would be awesome. Which, by the way, next year's Hakka matzah, the, 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 the matzah is going to be lit. Um, so... I can't wait. So I'm, I'm watching his recipes, and I'm really digging them. And then I see this thumbnail and this title, and it's like gumbo flatbread. Exactly. And I was like, hmm. This guy's in the panhandle of Florida. I don't even know if he's ever met a Cajun, right? So I'm intrigued, so I click on it, and I understand what he's getting at. He's got chicken and sausage. Pretty basic start. And he's got Cajun Cajun seasoning. (laughs) It's not Tony's or Slap Your Mama or Louisiana Love, so I don't know what else. But anyway, Cajun C or uh, not a texture, uh, Targill, Cajun seasoning. And then he's got the the Trinity, right? He's got onion, bell pepper. He's got the thing going. And he puts it all on a flatbread and goes, gumbo flatbread. But he's missing one major ingredient, indeed the foundation of a good gumbo, which is a good roux. See, you all know that. Instinctively. Even our Yankees know that. No. <laughs> oh, you get out. No, I'm joking. <laughs> and, and everybody like, okay, this is a great example of what I'm talking about. Someone from another part of the country hears gumbo, they have a certain very narrow idea of what that means, right? But in this room, we start talking about gumbo. Look at all the stuff 
all the knowledge, all the context, all the culture that surrounds a conversation about gumbo, right? Tomatoes, which if you don't know the tomato, no tomato debate, you don't really know the world of gumbo, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a debate, but, you know. Okay, I wouldn't say that out loud. We were going to just say and just, it's, I, I do have to admit, my mom would add a little bit of tomato paste right at the end, just right, the, just a little, just a little, I know, I know. I don't, I don't. I've repented, and may God have mercy on my soul. But, see, there's a whole context around this. You can't make gumbo flatbread. That's ridiculous. So, the, to me, gumbo flatbread is kind of like Strong's. It may be good. It may be great for people that are just being introduced to a Cajun-type flavor. But if you really want to understand what gumbo is, you got to go and you got to live it. You've got to experience this thing, right? So whenever we're working on definitions, we all have a very Christian, American, Western, Greek idea of words, right? So we talked about love and being a feeling or being a whatever, um, all the def- different, different definitions we had. And yet we have to get into the he- Hebrew mindset, the Jewish mindset, and, and not only to, to find a definition, but to find a world of definitions and related words and, and the things that those create. Am I, am I communicating? Does that make sense? And so well, as we talk about these things, I don't want it, I don't want to replace one single definition and go, oh, that's a Christian way of thinking about it. We need to think Hebraically. This is the Hebrew definition because that's not true. And any website, any YouTube video you go on, any teacher you hear that is, is pushing this thing of like, oh, well, this is the real definition of this word, they're not being honest with you. And it might not be, it might just be because they themselves don't know. But in truth, there's not one definition for every word. It doesn't work like that in English, right? Um, and it doesn't work like that in Hebrew either. There's a whole world that surrounds the biblical language, the Hebrew, the ideas. And the words that we have inherited are just simply a, a gateway and a roadmap into the concepts, right? They're just a way to trigger concepts. That's, that's all they are. So... We tend to get hung up on word studies, which is good. I like word studies, and it's a good thing to practice and a good thing to do. However, realize that language is only a, it's only a triggering mechanism for us to be able to trigger an experience. Does that make sense? Yeah? So, okay. So, I'm gonna, I want to start this week with, with talking about hope, which is a major personality trait of God. He's hopeful. And again, depending on what tradition you come from, there can be all kind of baggage around this idea of God's, God being hopeful. Because for some, um, it, some from a word of faith, prosperity gospel type of background, of course you know God is because God wants you to be rich and healthy and all and prosperous and well and all the rest, right? But from a holiness background or some other type of background like that, um, hopefulness may be something you struggle with when thinking about God. Because 
God is, to you maybe God is more of a judge and more, you see the righteousness and the justice of God more heavily than you see anything else. So how you weigh your image of God can be shaped by those things. But hopefulness and hope is a, is a huge thing that I wanted to talk about for a long, long time. So I got online uh, yesterday and I try to stay away from Facebook as much as I possibly can uh, because it's bad for my health and my well-being, and so I ask these three questions. What does hope in general mean to you? Number two, what causes, uh, what, uh, what causes a loss of hope or a lack of hope? And number three, what are the effects of a lack of hope? So this is probably going to bleed into next week just because we had so much other stuff to do today. So let me just, let's talk through this a little bit. So some of you that are in here commented, so you can repeat your comment or you can, you can not, it's up to you. So what, when I say the word hope, what does that mean to you? Somebody give me a, a response. Huh? There's a floor? Gotcha. A floor. I understand. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Encouragement. Okay. Good. Say. Optimism. Okay. Assurance. Okay. Expectation of good things to come. Okay. Anybody else? Future. Okay. Anybody have a different, something different? Does that pretty much sum up that list of, list of things, right? Um, okay, so what causes hope to lack? What causes us to lose hope? Okay, when our expectations don't become reality, right? Unbelief, right? Okay, good. What else? What causes a lack of hope? Or hope to wane. When you're defeated. Good. Fears becoming realities over and over again. This is good. Yeah. Confusion. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I looking at your husband when I say when you say that? <laughs> you're you're tired. I'm I'm looking at you. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say what you were saying, Ms. Sylvia. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. Which is, a, which is yeah, it's a, it's a great point. We have, we have optimists and pessimists, right? Some people are born pessimists, I believe. And some people are made to be pessimists, right? Some people are born cynical and some people are made to be cynical. You have the whole glass, right? The whole glass. I really should have done an illustration. I'm sorry, I couldn't get it together. Uh, you know, with the glass half empty, half, we all know that, right? Okay, so these are all really, really good answers. And this is, this is getting to the heart of this, right? How we define hope creates an expectation, which is what you all said, and then whether you end up being a hopeful person 
in reality depends on if your expectations have been realized or violated. Okay, good. Okay, the opposite of hope is dread. Okay, let's play that game. What's the opposite of hope? Somebody uh, give me some more words. Say, oh, discouragement, okay. Okay, nothing to tie yourself to, okay. Hopeless. Hopeless. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, that's two. That's two. I'm putting your name on the board. You got two checks. One more, you have to go to the office. The reality is your expectations do not ever come to reality. Right, okay, good, yeah. Right, if your expectations don't come to reality. So, I, I know this might seem like really mechanical. Like, why are we spending so much time doing this? Because of number three, that's why we're spending so much time on this. Because of the third question. What is the result of a lack of hope? Discouragement, lawlessness, depression. Say? Yeah, giving up, just walking away. Even if giving up is not on the outside, you can give up on the inside but still be active on the outside. That's a really tough place to be. Anger, anger is very good. Emptiness, absolutely. Okay. A little optimism there from a natural cynic. From a natural cynic. That's good. That's good. Starting. <laughs> oh, I don't do marriage counseling. but So y'all going to have to find out somebody. No. Uh, yeah, so, no, th- this is great. See, see the number three, the, the results of a lack of hope are... I love, who else said lawlessness? Lawlessness? Hmm? Right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. This is a system loop that we can work in order to get a more biblic, biblically accurate reality. The, the goal is that we want a more biblically accurate reality. From understanding holiness, which we talked about a few weeks ago, from understanding love and chesed, we want to more, we want to, um, we want to feel, not only feel, we want to know and be defined by a more biblical reality, but we also want to be able to share and show a more biblical reality because of tikkun olam, right? So this is a, this is a system we can work. So when we, yeah, ab- obedience is a part. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. But when we talk about when we talk about hope, in my mind, hope is integrated, of course, into holiness and love and all the other personality things about God we won't even have time to get to in this series. Hope is integrated into all those things. They all overlap somehow, just like love and holiness and believing loyalty and allegiance and holiness overlap. Hope overlaps there as well. And we'll talk about this more next week because I really want to focus on a couple of gospel passages for this. But it all blends together and it all works together. But for me, as I've watched the world the last few years, and any of you who are 
introspective over-analyzers. As you've watched the world the last few years, we've lost some love, right? We're in a love deficit, especially in America. I mean, we can speak for America because this is our, you know, it's our big tribe. I I don't know about other places of the country. And by the way, we know, I'm just going to say this, but we know that America is not the center of the universe, right? Okay, just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, you know, we've said on Wednesday nights a couple of times that, you know, we tend to think in, in America, when things are bad in America, it's a, it's a biblical sign, right? Although America is not the center of the biblical map, our timeline, our thought process, <laughs> Or, or any of that. And, and just the fact that somewhere today, someone is living the book of Revelation today, somewhere. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that. Today, what we see in the book of Revelation as a thing that is going to come some point in time, somebody is living that reality. Their world is being destroyed today. Just because it's not happening to us doesn't mean it's not happening to anyone. And that that biblical cycle is not still. But as we've watched people the last, as we've watched society the last few years, we've lost some love, certainly. We've lost some loving kindness, for sure. We are so defensive. We're so, lines are drawn so starkly and so clearly. And in some areas, that's a needed, that's a necessity. But in some areas, it's just a knee-jerk reaction to be protective. It's just a self-defense mechanism. It's a preservation mechanism. But I think out of all of those things, out of all the things that have changed and all the things that we have lost, can we agree we're living in a different world than we were three years ago? I mean, the, 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 the very air has changed. The, the, very, the very air around us has changed. I don't know how else to say it. I think the strongest thing we've lost, or maybe the most important thing we've lost, is a robust sense of hope. I think hope, you can have love, you can have joy, you can have all these things, but to me, hope is the fuel in the engine that keeps you moving forward. Hope is the thing that, that keeps, the, it keeps the motors running. It keeps the things going that you go like, okay, I mean, let's just, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but if you, if you feel like it, fine. How many of you know what it is like to not have hope? Okay. You know the difference. You've lived that time where you were hopeful and, and you were and, and what did that look like for you? What did that feel like for you when you have this thing, whatever we haven't defined yet, called hope? When you have this thing called hope, you look, you're always looking forward, right? You're looking forward to the future. Even if things are really crummy right now, they're not, they don't affect you that much because your eyes are on the future. Because you have this belief and this definition that you're working on that things are going to get better than they are right now. But when you lose 
See, that, that's what I'm talking about, the engine that keeps you moving forward. You get up in the morning going, things are not great, but you know what? I have hope that tomorrow's going to be better. And it keeps you moving forward. And we know from just looking around, anything that's not growing and moving forward is by definition dying, right? So those of you that have come to a place where you have no hope, you know what it's like then to wake up in the morning and be without that fuel that pushes you forward. And you become intimately and overwhelmingly cognizant of the state of right now. Right? And this is why to talk about hope in an optimism-pessimism kind of spectrum is, is not really accurate. See... What is interesting to me is that off of Facebook, and, and I I'm I'm, didn't read all the comments. You can go back if you're interested later and read. I do thank everybody for commenting and putting your, your, your thoughts in because it confirmed for me kind of what I thought. Most of our definition, right, most of us when we talk about hope, most of our definition when we define hope, what we're really defining and somebody said it earlier, is optimism. When I ask you to define hope and you say things like the, the belief or the trust or whatever that things will get better, what we're really talking about is optimism. Now, what's the next question? Well, aren't they the same? I don't know. I didn't realize this was even a conversation until I until I started studying the idea of hope and what commenters and philosophers and psychologists have to say about it. And let me just say this. If you're listening, and hopefully by now you, you, you know and you're not offended, but if you're offended that I reference philosophers and psychologists, um, when we talk about biblical things, let me tell you why I lean on them as the sciences. Because growing up, the sciences were a bad thing. Because the Bible was science and that's all we needed. And we didn't know or didn't realize or didn't care that the Bible is not science. As a matter of fact, the Bible is wisdom and poetry and song and, and proverb and parable and all these other things. The one thing the Bible is not is science. And to add to that, that in the 1700s, some of the the, the, the foundational preachers that made Christianity what it is, your, your Leonard Ravenhills, your Spurgeons, your D.L. Moody's, your, some of these people that you may or may, or may not have heard of, these men were not, were not pastors first. They were theologians first. And not only theologians, but they were theologians and philosophers now, you might, you, might, you might know the word philosophy but not have a real good handle on what philosophy actually is. That's okay. But in reality, we can't separate religion and philosophy. You just can't. They're both working at a way to do life. And what does life mean and what is life about? That's what both religion and philosophy are. And the great teachers, the great sage, Jewish sages... The great Jewish sages that we learn so much from and we have so much respect for, they were teachers, but they were also philosophers because that's the way that it works. 
So when I read about philosophers, psychologists, sociologists that talk about hope versus optimism, they have a whole different discussion. And a matter of fact, the general consensus is that hope and optimism are not the same thing. So, let's just, nobody get your feelings hurt, but let's just take a moment to think, how many of us have built a reality based on this, reading scripture through an optimism lens Versus a hope lens. Let me ask it like this. Can we agree that basically the working definition that we have of hope is a trust or belief that things will get better? Which I'm not mad at that definition, okay? I Again, I don't want to scrap everything and start over new. I want to add to As humans, we have to believe in some way that things are going to get better. It's just part of what, it's part of what causes us to want to continue to live, right? As we talked about, if you don't believe things are ever going to get better, there's all kinds of evil and and depression and just darkness that surrounds you. So that is definitely a kernel of this. I just want to expand it a little bit more. Because the problem is that this definition of hope, that the belief that things are going to get better is a two-edged sword. A a definition of hope as a belief that things are going to get better causes you to want to get up in the morning. It causes you to want to believe. It causes you to want to change. It causes you to want to be more Christ-like, more God-like. It causes you to want to to, to bow and surrender to the the leading of the Spirit. It causes you to want to be transformed and remade into the the image of Messiah. That's That's all positive things. Can we agree? This means yes? Okay. So that's a great thing. However, it's a double-edged sword. Because if we live on this almost kind of passive endorphin thing that things are going to get better, things are going to get better, and many of you have stated that the lack of hope comes when things don't get better or when, real, when expectations are not realized, then what happens? Then you don't want to hope. Then you see, it, yeah, it undercuts the very first definition. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying it well, but then it negates the very thing that we thought hope was. When, when, when you hope for things to get better and that drives your, your, your desires and things don't get better over and over and over and over, then you lose hope. You lose, you lose the drive to hope. You lose the drive to dream. You lose the drive to, to, to desire better things and you slow down and you slow down and you slow down until you eventually stop. You, you just give up. And as Kyle said, it it is the lowest of the low. Some of you know. Many of you know. And as we said a while ago, as a living thing, if something living stops progressing, it starts to die. My concern and my observation is that for large portions of the 
Christian world, they're dead on the inside. We're still doing the outside stuff. We're still going to church, going to congregation, going to Shabbat, going to synagogue, going to whatever that religious expression looks like. We're st- people still walk by and go, how are you doing? We say, I'm blessed. And that fake smile changes to a static stare just that quick because it's an outside expression and we're dead on the inside because we've lost hope. We've lost hope. Why have we lost hope? Well, maybe because we realize that a lot of the things that we've been taught our entire lives growing up were not actually true. So it's not that we've lost hope. We just don't know where to find true hope. Where to, we don't have confidence in where to place that trust. We, we want to. We want to have hope. We want to have excited. We want to be passionate about God and the things of God. We just don't know where, we don't know where to trust, where to put that hope. Because we've been burned once. And we know what that lack of hope feels like. We don't want to go back there again. So this is, a, this is problematic for me. Do you understand why? You're, like, you're nitpicking this. No, I don't think so. How many people do you know that... They may say they believe in God, and they may, may even go to church, but you know that their faith walk is not as vigorous as it could be. You know people like that. We all know people like that. Yeah, I believe in God, whatever. But, you know, it's like, it's just a thing. It's just because what we do. But they're, but they're not invigorated in their faith. Why? I believe it's because they don't have hope in the thing they say they believe in. Because at some point, an expectation was missed. A reality was missed. Something was dashed. Their confidence was dashed. And I believe we have a bunch of people walking around this earth that are dead on the inside because we're afraid to hope. I said this, and I kind of still agree with this, which may make you really nervous. Sorry. I've been transparent this whole time. I'm not about to stop now. I I told God... And I told myself, when I started to learn about the Torah, I had been so hurt by ministry, by people in ministry, that I have been to this point now, do, uh, pursuing Torah 15 or so years, 14 years. I never got preacher relig- or teacher religion in the Torah walk. I, ne- I listened to everybody, and then I came to a point where I didn't listen to anybody. You know, some people drive five states to go hear this Torah teacher, whatever. Cool. Like, but my attitude was, if, if what happens to me in the Torah walk is the same that happened to me when I was in the church, I'm walking away from it all. You can take your Bibles, you can take your church buildings, you can take your God, and you can stick them where the sun don't shine because I'm done with all of it. Does anybody kind of feel, okay, I thought I was in good company. If I have to go through, this looks like it's the answer. It gives me hope for the first time in years. 
I have something to get up in the morning and live for. Oh, yeah, but you have kids. Yeah, but you know what I mean. That, that God thing that only that can fill. The first time in years, I actually, I actually wanted, I didn't, the first time in years, I didn't despise this book because of what some people made it out to be. For the first time in years, I actually was kind of intrigued at what it had to say. For the first time in years, I, I, didn't, I didn't reject God as an abusive, maniacal, misogynistic, warmongering, etc., etc. For the first time in the years, I have, I have a little hope to believe. Now, if someone ruins this Torah thing for me, I'm done. There's nowhere else for me to turn. I'm not going to Catholicism. I'm not going to... Buddhism, I'm not, I'm done. I'm done with it all, right? That's the power of hope or the lack thereof. Now, I just said it out loud, but how many people do you bump into every day that feel the exact same way about where they are spiritually and they won't say it out loud? It's because of a lack of hope. They're scared to hope. They're scared to in our definition, believe that things are going to change. Why? Because they believe that for days, weeks, months, years, maybe decades, and things haven't changed. So you can understand. A friend of mine who was one of the most brilliant preachers I've ever known in my entire life, the world doesn't know his name, but I know his name, turned away, turned away from God and is now an atheist. And he told me very honestly and plainly one day that this is, this is so, and, and I've heard stories like this growing up and it's just dismissed. It's like, oh, we didn't really have faith in the first place. You know, we hear stuff like that. Oh, well, well, you know, their decision wasn't really serious in the first place. I'm trying not to cuss. <laughs> this infuriates me. Because what about giving credit the fact that just sometimes life sucks? And it doesn't have anything to do with how much you pray or how hard you squeeze or how much faith you can muster. Sometimes life just kicks you and puts you on the floor. And you have the faith and the hope that you're going to get up, and it kicks you again, and it kicks you again, and it kicks you again. And sometimes through being kicked so many times, you just get tired, and you go, you know what? I just don't have the energy to muster hope. Sorry. And that's a dangerous place. It's a scary place. This, this once... This brilliant, I'm not going to say once. He still is a brilliant person. He said, Joe, he pastored for 20 years, whatever it was, 30 years. He said, I, I, I got to the place where I could no longer justify my parishioners, my congregation calling me and asking me to pray. And I prayed and nothing happened. 
He said, day after day, week after week, year after year, I could no longer justify it away. He said, either there was something wrong with them, with me, or with God, or some... And he said, I checked every line in the chain over and over and over, and everything checked out. God was supposed to answer, and time after time after time, nothing happened. Now, this is super uncomfortable to talk about, right? (laughs) It may be uncomfortable, but you know what? It's very real, and it needs to be talked about. Because last year and the year before, maybe the last two or three years, how many pastors, young pastors, my age pastors and younger committed suicide? Growing churches, beautiful families, gone. Just gone. How? 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 Why? Why does that happen? You have everything active on the outside, struggling and dying on the inside. And don't tell me, well, your faith wasn't real in the first place. Your faith just wasn't strong enough. Your decision must have not really been a decision. They're this or that. Or, or try. One of our good friends texted me the other day and just venting, and she said something to the effect of, if another Christian, she's dealing with a lot of illness and has been for an extended amount of time. She said, if another Christian asks me, well, what do you think God's trying to show you? Or where do you think there's sin in your life you haven't repented of? (laughs) That causes people to lose hope. That causes people to lose hope. And the place you go when you lose hope, we'll talk about it next week in detail. Not a good place. To listen to this pastor, now atheist, be really transparent and really honest about why he said, you know what, I just can't. I either, his sentiment was, I either have enough emotional and mental and spiritual energy to live one life or live two lives. What do you mean? Because if your reality, your expectations and your reality has been dashed over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and yet you stay committed to that system, you're living two lives. One part of you feels like you have to hold on to this system. I have to hold on to this thing. Because of family, because of culture, because of tradition, because of religious guilt, because of fear. I have to hold on. I can't not believe. What do you mean not believe? That's not an option. But I don't believe. And and we're double-minded. And we know what the wisdom is on a double-minded person. Unstable in everything. Because of a lack, not because of a lack of love, not because of a lack of holiness, not because of a lack of faith, because of a lack of hope. The engine that fuels us to keep going. How dare 
how dare Christians, Hebrew rooters, whatever, people of faith, look at people like that pastor and condemn or judge? Hell, we don't even listen. We don't even listen. We don't, we don't, even, we don't even listen and go, okay, tell me your story. Tell me why you are where you are. I think if we listened and we really cared and we really were trying to understand, I think there would be a little more hope. There'd be a little more compassion. And I think we would have permission to really be honest about our own struggles. Because there's a lot of stuff we don't say. Right? A lot of stuff we don't mention. Like, I'm about this far from giving up on this whole thing. Because I have believed and believed and believed and believed for things to get better. And you know what? We're, we're going to deal with a lot of this stuff. This hope thing, might we might talk about it for six weeks. I don't know. Because something we haven't talked about is just an, illust- just an example of praying for a loved one who's struggling for years and years and years and years. Praying for someone, a loved one especially, who has been faithful to God, who has done everything the way that it's supposed to be done. And yet, God doesn't answer in the way we think he should answer. And so to, to in order to preserve some hope, we, we change the way we approach it. And when we realize we're doing it, well, his, his answer is not, it may not be, it may not be yes, it may just not be right now. Or his answer may be no because God is bigger than we are. In other words, deny, deny the, the brain God gave you and the, the desire to hope that God gave you and just deny all of that and just be a robot and go, well, God knows everything, I have to check out and just believe. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not belief. Belief is active. What we're asking each other to do is be inactive. Oh, it doesn't make sense to you? Just deactivate. Well, then, but that's not belief. (laughs) Belief is engaging and active and living and growing and breathing. And what are you asking me to do? See, The truth is, we really don't understand how God works. We don't know in all of his mystery and majesty and depth, we don't understand him. And you know what? That is perfectly okay. So then why do people lose hope? Oh, because we've led them to believe that we do know how God works. 
We've led them to believe that we've got God in a system. And if you do it this way, if you pray these prayers, if you have, I used to make fun of it all the time, and I will make fun of it because it deserves to be made fun of. Well, if you, but if you come to the altar and somebody's standing there to pray with you, an elder, a prayer minister, whatever, praying with you, and they lay hands on you, and they're screaming in your face, have faith, have faith. And you're so broken, you can hardly physically stand up because of the lack of hope. And the first question you ask is, how the hell do I do that? Somebody pushing me in the head, screaming, have faith. I just want to say, how do I do that? I'm dead inside. What does that look like, have faith? Does it mean to close my eyes tighter? Does it mean to, to, am I supposed to, what does it look like? And you know what? Nobody can give you an answer. You just have to receive it. Shut up! I'm I'm, I'm tired of all the cute answers. Because real people are really suffering. And they're really turning away from the king of heaven who loves them and who has chesed, allegiance, and believing loyalty towards them. They're turning away because none of us understand how God works. When we truly think about it, the writers of the Bible didn't even understand how God works. Did I say that out loud? I did. Because that's the truth. They are imagining and experiencing God real time. And passing on those words to us so that now we can wrestle with it. But we don't wrestle with it together. We just make up these systems. And we go, well, if you'll do this, A, B, and C, D, then this will be the result. If you do it this way, you can expect this, and this will be your reality. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen over and over and over and over and over. And people die on the inside. And they turn around, and they walk away from God Altogether, or they sit in our church pews, or they sit in our Shabbat congregations, and, and it's just the lights are on, but nobody's home. Because they're here because they're scared to go to hell. They're in church because they're scared of consequences, not because they love and are motivated by love and hope in a beautiful gospel, in a magnificent Savior, in an all powerful and all loving and all loyal Creator and Father and King. I don't want my kids to be around me because they're scared of the consequences. I want them to be around me because they have hope in who I am. We've created systems. But you know what? We've created systems because we need systems. We've created systems because we need to feel like we have it figured out. So we make the Bible mean things that the Bible doesn't mean. We make God into a God that God is not because we need to feel security in the way we understand it. And as long as we can feel like we have it figured out, then we're good. Pete Enns calls this the sin of certainty. We're not comfortable not knowing how God is going to act or react. We're not comfortable with that. We can't have that. So we have to put God in a box, so to speak. The problem is my box may not fit you. So whenever I tell you, well, this is how... God works for me. See how we say that? This is how God works for me. See, that's the problem. We want a God that works for us. Forgetting that God is 
a lion that cannot be tamed. Yeah. It's an old Jimmy Needham song called, I, I Need You Like a Hurricane, Thunder Crashing Winds and Rain to Tear My World Down. God is a hurricane. But see, we can't handle that. And so we create these definites. We create these definitions. And we create expectations for people. And then people go out and live life and they go, this doesn't work. But I can't dare say it doesn't work because my church told me that was the gospel. Oh. My church told me that was prosperity. My church told me that was the healing. My church told me that was restoration. That was this. That was that. My doctrine says. My preacher says. My rabbi says. My whatever says. I can't say that it doesn't work because that's supposed to be the truth. And so people just turn off. Just turn off. Done. And I've said this many times and I'll continue to say it. This is why I ask questions. This is why I ask questions. And I ask annoying questions, and I ask nerdy questions, and I ask overanalyzing, nitpicky questions. Because for so long I wasn't allowed to ask questions. And so I just turned off. Heather can tell you for the second half of our youth ministry, she did everything. I showed up on Wednesday nights, led two or three songs of worship, taught a 10 minute devotion, and we shot pool afterwards. That was youth ministry. I didn't like it. I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't fulfilled by it. I felt like I was lying to myself, but I just didn't have the strength to go like, why? What's the point? Not because of the kids or the ministry or anything, because of me, I'd lost hope. So is hope and optimism really the same thing? Because what we've been working off of is really a definition of optimism. And listen, optimism works for a lot of people. My concern is for the people it doesn't work for. Because we're losing those people and have lost those people. And you know what? I'm not scared primarily that they die and go to hell. That's not what I'm scared of. I'm scared that we've misrepresented God to them. That we've perverted God's nature. Oh, we stand here every Shabbat and we sing Birkat Kohanim over the kids where we place God's name, his personality, his reputation, his character, all those things I talk about all the time, on the kids. But if, if, if people are turning away because things are not working and they can't be, we can't be bothered with questions why, we're misrepresenting who God is. I'm much more concerned about misrepresenting my king. I won't say anything more on that. So, is hope and optimism the same? Next week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this. There were several passages I meant to read today. Forgive me for not. Next week, we'll get into it. We'll be scripture heavy next week, and we'll talk about what is the difference? Are there some differences? And uh, hopefully find a way out of some of this that can be helpful. All right? Father, thank you for our online family, and as we uh, continue... To fellowship and uh, have make kiddish together and have oneg, Father, I pray that um, our online family is uh, encouraged, challenged, strengthened by our, their time with us today. 
so many people that we know that are commenting and uh, are with us every Shabbat, so many that we know and love um, and are so special to us. And Father, I just pray uh, that the rest of the Shabbat be one of, of, of peace and of healing and the rest of this week um, as we navigate this tumultuous and chaotic world. We're not doing it in our own strength and we're not doing it alone. The power, the presence, the Ruach, the very spirit and personality of the living King, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, gives us the hope and gives us the strength to continue on. And we do it because of you. So we love you and we bless you, Father. And we ask your blessings on our live stream family through Yeshua, our precious Messiah. Amen and amen.